What do mental health and diversity and inclusion have in common? Why is it important for us to be aware of the many ways that people show up in society? How do we deal with the stigmas that are associated with seeking mental health care? On today's episode of Inscribing Inclusion, we'll be joined by a mental health professional who will answer those questions and more. All right. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Inscribing Inclusion. I am your host, Jocelyn Armstrong. I'm so glad that you have tuned in for this particular episode. Um, It's something that I consider to be an important topic as we talk about um, diversity, inclusion, and just how people show up in the world. So today we're going to talk about mental health. I am excited to have one of my good friends on with us today, who is a mental health expert. She's a therapist and in addition to being an instructor at a large university, also owns and operates a private practice with a full staff. Um, You have heard me say that many of these guests are my good friends often, that's because it's true. I am fortunate enough to have a wide variety of friendships and a bunch of folks who have talents and gifts in a variety of areas. So with that being said, I would like to introduce you to Shantae Meadows, who is the founder and head counselor at Meadows Counseling Group. Welcome to the show, Shantae. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. So as we, I should say, before we get started into our conversation, if you would just tell the listeners a little bit about your background, how you got into this particular um, career path and how it led you to where you are now currently as a professor and an owner of a um, therapy group. Yeah. Well, um, I wish, I always tell people, I wish there was like this life moving story, but honestly, um, you know, some things you're chosen to do. Um, and what I tell people, I am a, so I'm Shantae Meadows. I'm the owner and uh, clinical director of Meadows Counseling Group. And we are, uh, we serve a large population of uh, communities of color because we are primary a practice of communities of color. And I didn't set out for anything to be this way. It just kind of happened. And um, what happened is uh, I fell in, I did fall in love with mental health. Um, I, I fell in love with social work and they kind of go hand in hand. Um, and how I fell in love with them was actually I was a middle school teacher teaching Spanish in rural North Carolina. And one to already have a set of students where education was a struggle, but you know, you have classroom difficulties, you have lots of things. And I found my life, myself more interested in what was going on in my students' lives. And afterwards, um, I kind of started to get more interested in life. And I started to learn a lot of these kiddos had diagnoses and family issues and trauma. And so school really was an outlet. And it's kind of hard to ask a kiddo to sit down, be quiet, take in this information when at home, they may be catching all kinds of crap. And, but then, so I started out my career with kids 
and really trying to help kids and families get to resources. So as a clinical social worker, I did a lot of case management and I learned that people did not know that there are resources out there for help. There are lots of resources, but people don't know that there are resources. So there could be help with paying for a bill. There could be help getting mental health services. There could be help with knowing what's the appropriate medication or getting a diagnosis that can change your access to service. And so that's really what introduced me to social work and mental health um, is just realizing mental health was at the root of things. Well, and as my career kept going, I started to recognize that there's a lot of program out there for kiddos. You can get help in schools and because we have laws to protect them. But you know what? All these great therapists do a lot of great work with kids and then they send them home to adults who have never seen a therapist. And if you have never seen a therapist as an adult, but this kiddo has, it's, you, they're working with a therapist and they're trying to be emotionally well and they're not trying to be toxic and carry things on. But yet we're sending them in environments where the people that they live with, they're going to downplay their therapy, going to downplay their healing because they've never done it. And that's mm. just a lot of my work, honestly, to adults more than kids because I was like yeah 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 these kids need but we and a lot of people are like oh well we're going to change the generation so we put all this focus on the kids I'm going to tell you how generations are set up if you don't work with the whole system it's not going to work because if someone else is cutting through all the good work and downplaying it and degrading it eventually that's the message they're going to get more therapies once a week yeah school's a couple hours but their therapy is only gonna be once a week but they're in that house every day here and you're not gonna be this or suck up them tears or what you got to be sad for well if we don't change that narrative with adults we have no hope for the kids so that's hey. really where my work shifted to focus on kids happenstance I uh working at the university got into college mental health which um uh, what most people don't realize is typically typically your first big major mental health episode will happen between the ages of 18 and 21. That doesn't mean that there weren't symptoms that happened before then, but usually between 18 and 21 is where if there's going to be a big mental health episode because developmentally what is happening, um, just not only with like hormones and um, just life of the human development, that's where like it all kind of comes together. That's why college is so important. And that's also where I also got introduced into uh, college mental health, which is still adults. Um, and so that's kind of where our practice focuses between the two. Um, I think naturally, right, being a Black female and working in college mental health and working so much with students who had, right, they come to college and they have left 18 years of trauma. And mm -hmm. um, like, right, literally they've been in a house or an environment. Like, and when I say an environment, it could be you grew up in poverty. So it's not just your house, it's your entire community. You could have grown up around violence. You could have grown up around drugs and alcohol. No, it may or may not have been in your house, but it's your whole system around you. And when you get to college and that no longer exists, because when you get to college, you have a different access to resources. You have a different level of security. Mm -hmm. The brain doesn't just shift and it's like, oh, you're better because you're in a different environment. No, the brain is like, hey, there is difference. I didn't know that. And that's really where I started to recognize um, that shift and seeing college students. So it's like, even for myself, how I got into it, a lot of it was happenstance, seeing that shift, and also truthfully, working with some of the most resistant clients to 
and I say resistance and people of color are the most resistant (laughs) to this change. And it was because, right, I know nothing different. So how do I trust this process that you telling me that I can heal or you telling me these negative thoughts in my head don't have to exist? Like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense because I know no life like that. I know no world or no thought without that. Or I'm having these things that like don't make sense to me. Okay, I'm in a better environment. So why am I anxious? Why am I depressed? I'm no longer in these situations. And being resistant to being like, hey, there's healing, there's better. And this is normal for you to have this reaction because the body for the first time took the deep breath to be like, you're safe now, you're okay now. And there's this resistance often in people of color because of narratives that have happened And truthfully, narratives that keep people safe, narratives that keep life functioning to make it through a certain life, yeah, it existed there. But when you get to college, there's certain things you do have to um, learn how to shift through. And so working with some of that resistance and transitioning, uh, there's a lot of life that transition happening. And I've noticed a lot of the struggles were students of color, students who grew up in poverty, um, all the different types of diversity issues you could think of is just trying to like find how do I fit in this environment that makes no sense to me because it's not what, what I grew up with um, has really been also a key part of my work that I do and the work of just like how I've kind of found this space of trying to help. My, my biggest goal, if you would ask me what I want to do, is increase, um, really increase access and utilization, utilization of all mental health in all communities of color. And I say that because it's just a narrative that does not exist in certain communities. And so Mm -hmm. I wanna increase that access. And that's a lot of what Meadows Counseling does, not only just myself, but a lot of my clinicians all come from, they have a similar path and a similar story to understand what it's like. And thus most of my clinicians are also clinicians of color. So that's me. Got it. So talking about that, you said you wanted to create a space and the understanding in a community of, particularly communities of color, of having access to mental health care and what that really means. Talk to us a little bit about why it's important for the general public to just have a basic understanding of mental health. Like we, we see things on television where, you know, people, we, well, now I think we see a little more conversation around it. People are more open about it, but we still hear, you know, people colloquially, oh, he's crazy or she's schizo or, you know, I have OCD or I am anxious. They've not been diagnosed, right? They just, you know, say these things because I wash my hands a lot. Okay, maybe you're clean. I mean, so people, they say these things not having a full, I think, understanding of what these words mean and sometimes throw them around in front of people that do know what they mean because those are their diagnoses. And now it creates, a, you know, a sticky environment, a very uncomfortable space. So why, why is it important for the general public to just have a, an overview even a surface level understanding of, of mental health. Well, it's funny because those are actually catch 22s. And the reason I say they're catch 22s is because the fact that people would even be like, oh, I have OCD. Even if they don't have it, it's like, it's weird because right, I don't want to make someone who really has it feel like you're downplaying or diminishing and stopping someone's growth. But in the same vein, as a therapist, I'm like, hey, the fact that you even know that that's a diagnosis yay <laughs> like right, yay. Right. um you know like we so it's like this really double-edged sword there of like right I don't want to hurt this person but the fact that we can start to throw these terminology around because I can very vividly grow up I don't remember hearing diagnoses like mm-hmm. 
as a conversation or to even be like, oh, I got OCD. Like it wasn't something I feel like I grew up hearing. Um, Mm -hmm. Right now we're older, there's a a terminology or like, man, I just feel anxious. I don't remember Mm -hmm. growing up hearing these things. So it's such a like double edge because we use it in one capacity to really be like, oh, um, you know, very flippant about it Mm -hmm. and, and dismissive. But honestly, it means we're act- we are starting to increase conversation somewhere that you even know that it's a thing. Um, so I think the but the reasons truthfully that I think it's important for um, the general public just to know mental health is because it is truly an aspect of our life. Just like we take a if we take a deep breath and if our chest hurt when we took that deep breath, we would know like hmm, it shouldn't feel like that. Like that's mm-hmm. not normal in mm-hmm. my body for this deep breath to hurt. Or if you stub your toe and you feel pain, you recognize that, hey, that's pain. Or even if you have a pain and don't know why it's pain, you recognize it. Well, Mm -hmm. mental health, we don't recognize because we don't talk about it. And so sometimes we're having thoughts in our head that we have normalized, but are not very healthy or normal thoughts. So if you are constantly telling yourself, I'm ugly, I'm ugly, and you have started to believe that, yeah, that's not a good thing. Um, And that's not something we want to normalize or to be like, oh, that's an okay thought to continuously have. It's okay if you have it every now and then, but it's like, right, when you, it's on repeat. Or when you're finding like, you know what, I'm really struggling with sleep. Uh, And you normalize, hey, I don't get no sleep. Or I very one, I'll have some like, I could survive on two, two hours of sleep and I'm good to go, ready to go. Oh no. Okay, in my mental health world, when someone tells me two hours of sleep and you're good to go and you've done this a few days, okay, we call that manic and that is unsafe. That mm-hmm. is very dangerous. Um, that's not only dangerous for your body, but for your mind. And that means some bad things could potentially happen because you're not getting enough sleep. So why is it important for the general public to know is because if you said something like that, I need the general public to know like, hey, I might need to get somebody some help because they said they slept for two hours and they're fine. If you're sleeping for two hours, for two, three days, four days, and you're okay, eh, nine out of 10, you're not really okay in that moment. You, you're, and that's what we would call manic. And we need to figure out what's going on that you are manic. It could be a medication. It could be a mental health issue. But I need I needed someone to hear and know the signs of help is needed or hear and know the signs that I need help. And I think we know those for the physical symptoms. If I have a headache for too many days, hey, I need to go get that checked out because I'm having too many headaches. But hey, do you know if you're not sleeping or maybe sometimes if your stomach is really messed up or sometimes if your palms are always sweaty or your thoughts are racing and you can't shut them off, I need people to know the signs and symptoms to be like, it's time to talk to someone the same way in their health issues, they know it's time for me to go to the doctor because hmm, something could be wrong. It's the exact same thing, but unless we normalize and start to talk about what are signs and symptoms, we miss it. And once we start to miss it, we normalize it. And that's where we get into dangerous situations because you're right, we get higher higher incidence of suicide. We get into rage and we get into violence. I mean, there's so many things that also become um, comorbid with mental health if it's not addressed. And Mm. if we don't talk about it to one, either notice that it's happening with us, that's an issue. Or if we also don't notice it's happening 
for those that we love and care about. It, it creates bigger and larger issues, drugs and alcohol issues. I mean, like it, it goes so deep and that's why we can talk about all these other things, but we miss signs and symptoms. And thus we have a big issue on our hand. We have a mental health crisis yeah. because we haven't normalized it because the general public hasn't always been attuned to what to listen for, what to know, what to question, what to seek help for. And I think that's why the general public, we need to talk about, hey, what does anxiety, what could it look like? What does depression look like? What is, um, you know, bipolar? And I know these things get worse, but like to really understand, hey, if you ever heard these things or you ever felt them, this may be the time, because otherwise you're really truthfully suffering in silence that could cause some long-term effects, not only on you, potentially your family, your life, things like that. You mentioned mental health crises and I would be willing to say that we are kind of in a space right now of a nationwide or even global at some points mental health crises Mm -hmm. because we have been in a space now where folks were essentially isolated for months on end and we have come to a time where it's like okay we're not isolated anymore and here we are we're out here but like also there's still this virus that's here and now it has a variant. And oh, by the way, (laughs) in the middle of all of this, um, particularly turning our attention back to last summer, um, and sadly, George Floyd was not the first black man that has been killed by police, right? Breonna Taylor is not the first black woman who has lost her life to law enforcement. Um, Amart Arbery is not the first black man who's been killed by the hypervigilant neighbors, right? This has been going on for many, many years. But last summer seemed to be, I think, because everyone was isolated and, and locked away and kind of dealing with their own feelings about what that meant. Also, though, being in place and having to watch and look at things that they were able to pass by before. So considering the what I call the great awakening of 2020, um, how have you seen that impact your practice? Like, what changes have you seen Last summer was, a, and all the way up until now, has been the culmination of, so what What a lot of people don't realize is we were already headed just, okay, so if you think about 20, all the way from probably about 2017, 2018, 2019, we had gotten already into this place of high, high, high levels of anxiety with mass shootings, school shootings, um, that didn't necessarily always have something to do with race, but just like someone going into some capacity into a large crowd and opening fire. We have been (laughs) escalating with that for years now. And I think that had already put most Americans on some level of high anxiety alert and already like this thing. So what you have to understand, like all we have seen is this level of anxiety implode to where people who were able to manage it because there were things within their control, such as I could go for a run, I could go hang out with my friends, I can go to a gym, like the things that they did to cope with their anxiety, they had access to. So it was able to bring some of it and make it manageable. So we already were heading up this this mountain that was not looking very good and then 2020 happened and then we said hey all the things that make you feel better about your life you can't do that 
<laughs> you can't go for this run. You can't go to that gym. You can't hang out with your friends. You, you like, we snatch all the healthy coping mechanisms away quickly. Mm-hmm. And that was dangerous in a way that we were not thinking through mm-hmm. at the time. Now, like, if you watch how, like, even commercials, like, they even now say, yes, protect yourself. And here's the mental health resources because they realize, hey, we can't snatch people's <laughs> right. mechanisms away. And, and so that's what we saw was at last summer, it was this racial trauma has always existed. That was not new for racial trauma. And this trauma to exist in a way of like, it, it was focused on um, racism. But what was happening is um, also what was happening because of the pandemic was happening and this lack of coping, people were tuned in to TV all the time. Like mm-hmm. those of us that were like here in Ohio, right? We watched for the governor's update like clockwork. So people were like so tuned in to social media, so tuned in to TV because we needed to know what the numbers were. We needed to know. So, right, I already said there was this anxiety happening. And then when the pandemic happened, that made us hyper focus on TV, social media. Well, the racial tension imploded, which it wasn't new. Mm-hmm. But it was the first time we were all really watching TV. We were all really watching the news. So mm-hmm. the stuff that you could have ignored because you never turned on your TV, you couldn't ignore mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for the first time ever. And that's why it really shifted. And right, it, 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 that's what happened. And so all that did was increase fear, increase anxiety which we already, I just said, we were already in anxiety. So you just took anxiety and just like gave it a dose of like, you know, some major, it, what it was, it was putting anxiety on top of anxiety. And it was then like gasoline on a campfire. And then it was like, hey, but you can't cope with it because you can't really, you're not really supposed to be around people. You're not supposed to do the things that make you feel better. So we're going to also, it was just like, and that's what we saw happen in mental health was like, wait a minute. People was already struggling. And I can say that because I've watched my practice grow because of mass shootings. I've watched it grow because of the other stuff. But then when COVID hit and it was like, you have nothing else you can do but find someone to talk to. But then in the same time, because I'm watching TV and social media, I am aware for the first time how much race is like a big factor. For some people, it was like the awakening. Wait a minute, y'all. And it wasn't that it was new, but it was, we were all watching TV. And so people were like, oh my God. And it caused pe- some people to look in the mirror for the first time to be like, oh, dad, I participated in that conversation. Oh, dad, I did that. And that was because the media was saturating us, not only with COVID, but what was happening with all the law enforcement and the shootings. And it was like, if you right most people if they don't turn on the news they don't turn on the news but right during last summer and all that everybody watched news and they weren't watching it for the race stuff they were watching it for COVID but a byproduct of that was the race stuff was there too Mm -hmm. so it was all the stuff you couldn't have missed and all of that like right for my clients pre-COVID I always was like turn off the TV turn off social media but I couldn't say that because I understood that they needed to having those numbers made them feel a little bit better. But then also I found that like the racial stuff was also triggering stuff that, so it was like, there was this thing of you were for the first time, a mirror was in your face if you had been blind to it. 
And then if you weren't blind to it, you already were anxious and rage because you were in a certain place. Now you are being triggered about race stuff that you might have put on the back burner. But it's no longer, I can't put it on the back burner because everything I turn to is about it. And so what we saw was everyone's anxiety. Like it is to me, like whether someone want to admit it or not, we all have anxiety. First of all, if anyone don't know, we all have anxiety. Like the same way we get an adrenaline rush, like if you're in a car accident or if you feel like a dog is chasing you, we all, what, what is happening in our brain and our body, we produce on a natural any given day. So we all are, have some ability to be anxious. We actually want you to be anxious because it works. If there's a dangerous situation, I need your system to kick in and be like, hey, this is dangerous. So we all have it. But what was happening is we all had anxiety at the same time. And that's what we watched happen. And then we all, it's kind of like you threw us all in a bowl together and was like, hey, you learn how to manage your own anxiety. <laughs> and we was like, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. And so mental health professionals, truthfully, like the people who work in mental health, I, I am very interested in this research of how did you get through that? Because there was no way you didn't have anxiety. And then you was treating everybody else with anxiety. Yeah. And that's yeah. what we saw. And we saw people run because talking to people was the only thing you could do. Like, where were you? You couldn't go. What was you? You couldn't go to mama's house. You couldn't go to your brother's house and hang out. You couldn't go, you know, you couldn't, you know, go to the gym. You couldn't go to the uh, parties or the things you did to get rid of it. So literally talking was the only thing you could do. But not only were you talking about stuff that was happening, you were also being triggered for other life stuff at the same time. And so we just saw this implosion of people flock to mental health for a place in a space to talk to, a place of their own to process how it was to go through not only the uncertainty with COVID numbers, but also the awakening of what in the world is happening. Like, it was like our body, our brains were trying to process two huge things. And truthfully, it was more than two huge things, but we'll just say that one, right. at, one <laughs> at the same time. And I think people were just looking for a place. So what we saw in mental health was it implode in a way that we never, ever. So the access that I said I was looking for, it happened because we went to telehealth and access was no longer an issue. Like you could find a therapist on a phone, on a computer, you could get to one. So access drastically increased. Our numbers drastically increased. Um, utilization went up. So what we saw and are currently still seeing is people are coming to therapy. Yeah. yeah, they need a place. They still need a place because it's not over mm -hmm. and they're still needing this place to talk to. So that's kind of, it's so much. It's like the intersection of, intersection of a lot of things happen and uh, they're nowhere near over, right? We haven't even talked about the economics of it all, which if you ever follow the economics of the country, you also see mental health challenges increase. You see murder suicides go up. You see other things happen when you see, right, when you saw the stock markets fall and the housing crises, when you go back, look at what also happened to mental health. Well, that's what made 2020 so, in 2021. So not only did we have COVID, now we have this racial tension and racial injustice, but we also had an economic crisis happening. Mm. So mental health, right, Stre money stresses people out. Yeah, yeah. And if you're in a population of people who you, you know, 
you are you look a certain way right you live in a certain socioeconomic status and maybe you work in a space that you are more prone to be exposed to covid talk about multiplied anxiety right you're you're like you said the intersection of these things and it has to be wild i think from the outside looking in having watched your practice grow it probably has to be a very wild feeling of like yes the practice is growing and i have to keep hiring more therapists and i have to update my business plan and yay but also like oh but all these folks need all this help because there's a lot of stuff going on so it's it's a, it's a it's a good and bad thing right and then the fact that yay these people are coming to get the help but oh my goodness there's still so many more people that need help right yeah, yeah. I think that is, and I, I, I say to people daily, people like, when I say, oh, I'm, when people ask, what do I do? And I'm like, oh, I'm in a mental health, or I own a mental health practice. Oh my God, it's so needed. And I'm like, you have no idea. But the hard part here is a lot of people right now want to come and scratch the surface of what's just happening right now. But what we have to realize is these issues brought up the larger stuff that was already there. And that's really what needs to be discussed. And that is why it's so hard. Um, <clears throat> and this is where sometimes having a therapist that you relate to is important because it's this, this idea that like, yes, there's this racial stuff, but there's also like, how did money affect me in my life? And so how is that going to make the decisions of, do I keep my job? Do I quit my job? Well, how has health affected me in my life? And not COVID, but health. If I have asthma, do I keep my job? Do I quit my job? Like, and so some of this is like, we don't want to, if you, some people you look back in your life, you were like, I don't want to go back to where I came from. So if you came from poverty and you're doing well now, you don't want to make decisions in your life that's going to take you back. You also don't want to have to explain some of those things. And I think this is where, so I'm like, sometimes people want to go find a therapist that looks like them because they're like, hey, you may understand what it's like to grow up in the hood and this mm -hmm. happened and I'm not trying to get back to that life. Mm -hmm. And there's other just things that will make it like, I don't have to explain. And, and because of all that, what is happening in the world, I want to be able to speak freely and not have to worry about, did I offend you? Mm -hmm. White guilt white fragility mm -hmm. like biases and not even because I don't it's not even about I don't like you it's just I want a space for me and not to have to explain me in that kind of way and so that's what like we've seen it's just like a complexity of like and that's what it's been it's like the growth is like when I hire therapists and it's so funny right anyone who works in HR you know you're not allowed to technically you know you're not allowed to discriminate right and this is where i'm telling all my hr friends well hey guess what's imploding people want a black mental health therapist people want a therapist who is intersectionality queer friendly and black because so uh and there's not just one that wanted it's about 30 of them who want it so you want to tell me how do i advertise to find that therapist exactly <laughs> <But> exactly <laughs> because right 2020 came with a lot of baggage of mm -hmm. right a lot of stuff and so trying to grow and grow with the needs and grow with people for the first time being like how has race impacted my life how has my queerness effect impacted my life in a way that there's this thing happening in the world that there's dialogue and changes and I'm trying to find where do I fit and where do I belong and like as a therapist that's growing it's like yeah yay we're growing but it's like 
ooh, we're only scratching the surface and how do we meet these needs? Okay, I don't really know the answer here. And, and just every day we're gonna be like, okay, that's gonna send me an answer because the need is so great. And when we really start, it's like, this is the onion. This, the 2020, we peeled back a few onions, but there are so many more layers. And it sounds, yeah, and it sounds like what you're describing too is both inherent and learned cultural competence, right? And so, what whatever the identities are that people show up with when they're going to see their therapist, when they have these similarities, particularly if it's if it's let's say race and gender, when they have these similarities. It's almost like a shorthand or a shortcut, and so they can spend way more time getting stuff out and focusing on their treatment because they don't have to say, okay, and I was telling so-and-so and they're using vernacular or something, they have to go back and explain it. And they don't have to do that, right? If they they use certain acronyms or talk about certain terminology or certain feelings or things, the person on the other side of the table or the other side of the screen these days understands it. Similarly situated though, you have some therapists um, who have learned cultural competency. So they have taken the time to immerse themselves um, in, in spaces that are different than how they grew up or, wildly different than who they are as individuals and they dig into those spaces and they learn these people so then when folks do show up in front of them even though it's not their lived experience because they have taken the time to be culturally to become culturally competent through they, their learned experience and observation they are even you know better equipped I will say because they've taken those extra steps absolutely I mean I, I tell people all the time um not every therapist in my practice is black. Not every, I have, we have men, we have women, we have non-black therapists. And I, I want, I, I always, honestly, I caution people to get caught just on one aspect of what you're looking for. And what I mean by that is I know some very, very good, great even therapists who are not black but what they are trained in, you're going to get the best of the best. And they are also culturally aware to know how to make sure they advocate for you even in your session to be safe and advocate for you in your session to know you don't have to explain who you are. And there are people who, um, <clears throat> you know, right now, so for example, it would be uh, a trauma-based therapy such as EMDR, which is really focused on healing trauma and neural pathways. Um, well, I know some white therapists who are trained in a lot of cultural aspects. And so the thoughts that they're trying to help you through that are related to culture, they are not gonna question. And a part of that is they've done the work. They've done the work. And I also tell people, don't, we also gotta remember like these days, there are people who marry, marry into Black families. There are people who may have been adopted by a Black family. Like, yeah. we can't just, <laughs> or had two dads or two, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. eh, let's be careful of like, just getting caught up in, do you just have this? Mm -hmm. And I caution people, I'm like, no, you want to find someone who you connect with and don't make also the same way we don't want to make assumptions about our clients. I tell them, hey, you don't want to make assumptions about your therapist either. Because- yeah. Right, you could be talking to the person who, right, was raised by two moms. And so when you're sitting there talking about queer and they may like completely understand, like, no, nah, this is what this is like. 
Mm-hmm. But you made an assumption because they were married to a man. Like, you you know, so like, we have to be very cautious. Uh, but I completely understand wanting that. And like you said, there's definitely some people it's inherent and it's there. And some people, they do the work. There are people in this world that do the work. And we can't discredit them for whatever their path has taken that they did the work. So let's talk about <clears throat> the stigma around accessing mental health care. Even though we live in a society now where we hear about it a lot, we're watching television shows and, you know, some of the characters are walking through their therapy, you know, we see them in their therapist's office and this sort of, I think I, I remember being pretty popular, like watching the show girlfriends like when I was like in college right they would you know one of the characters would go to the therapy and like I said you see it even now on certain shows and that kind of thing and shoot even as a kid as a there was a sitcom growing pains and the dad was a therapist and had an office in the house and all that um so we see it in entertainment if you will and it's normalized there to a degree but yet there's still spaces where there's stigma so when you think about um communities of color where there it's Black or Hispanic or Asian or otherwise, um, based on socioeconomic class, because it is seen as something that is unattainable or something that, you know, that's just for rich people, um, based upon religious beliefs, right? We know that there are some cultures and communities and religious systems that say that you don't need therapy, you just have to pray, it's going to be fine. So how do, you know, and, and when you're, again, when you're, for instance, a person of color who is from a very, say, um, religious family structure, and you don't have a lot of money, <laughs> therapy seems like something that's on another planet for you, right? How do we break down the stigma though? What, what practical things can we do to help create both access and safe spaces so that people feel like it's all right to get this help? Um, I think that is, uh, man, there's so much there. So the stigma, uh, so some of the stigma, I think in my personal and professional opinion is the highest when you start looking at socioeconomic status. And one of the reasons is like, to your point, we saw these shows and entertainment, but these families that use therapy were typically more affluent families. And so we have, unconsciously looked at therapy as the rich people thing Mm -hmm. as like you can afford to talk to someone about your problems versus I have to do something about my problems Mm -hmm. and that becomes the conversation that grandma passed on to mom mom passed on a child and hence it just it just feeds and it's like and unfortunately, we have systems such as community mental health versus private mental health. And unfortunately, like if you ever seen right any movie where you go in and you see the social worker and the social worker, it's always like, you know, you go to public health and there's a people, babies crying, people doing all kinds of stuff and they ain't paying attention to your case. Well, unfortunately, mental health has that exact same stigma that when you go to community mental health, they're going to call you crazy. They're going to want to put you on medication. They don't really care. They're going to try and take your kid. Like there's so much around community. And when we think of mental health, unfortunately, the stigma we have what's called severe and pervasive mental health. That is typically who uses community, not always, 
but severe and pervasive mental health may be that person who hears the voices or that person that we see talking to themselves walking down the street or the violent things that we've heard and seen. That, can, that is oftentimes sometimes where communities come in. That doesn't mean that there's not someone there that has depression or there's not someone there, but what we have mentally started to associate with community mental health is that severe mental health, the kind that's dangerous and what we call crazy. And so the stigma has been when we say mental health, that's what we think of. Or we think of the rich person in the couch. So it's like we only have two options of what we presented as mental health. Well, and it's almost like what you see. So for listeners who maybe have never listened before, I'm an attorney. And it's almost like what you see when people make the difference between a public defender and a private criminal defense attorney, right? And it's not to say that these people are not equally equipped, right? One just happens to work for the county. One works for a a law firm or for themselves, right? But because you're not paying for the public defender, then people act as though that is, that the representation is not as good or that sort of thing, right? Versus if you're paying for your criminal defense attorney, then clearly you're gonna get the result that you want and they're better. And that's not true. Those people often sit in the same law school classrooms. They sit for the same bar exam that I did and I don't even practice actively, right? And so that almost feels like, and I, I know some folks who have worked in community mental health spaces, particularly for substance abuse, and they were county funded agencies. My mother audited many of their you know, their case files and everything is a part of her job. And those were some of the best counselors you would ever meet, right? Because but because they were right there in the community and they didn't have plush offices and their clients didn't have a couch. They would do group sessions in, you know, with hard plastic chairs on linoleum floors in this center that's right in the heart of the community. But they were no less qualified than the therapist that had the, the, the bright office with the big windows, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So mental health has that same stigma fighting against it is, we think of community mental health, which is often, right, Medicaid or no insurance. Mm-hmm. And it also potentially could be the more severe cases. So that is right. You, you may have someone who has psychosis. And these aren't conditions that you can't treat, but they do require a different, much more medical kind of treatment. And like I said, that's that person that you may see walking down the street, talking to themselves. This is the homeless population that we often see that have severe and pervasive mental health. But that's what people think of when they think of mental health. And so it's like, well, I'm not that bad. And then it's like, or private practice. I'm not rich and I can't afford just to talk about my problems. And so we have these two camps of like the stigma being, that's all people think of with mental health. And so a part of the stigma is breaking the rhetoric of like, hey, first off, no. like mental health is on a, a spectrum. It's a continuum and we all have it. We all have good days. We have bad days. We have days that some days, you know what? It's just really hard. We're irritable. We're moody. But if we don't have, and so the stigma is really about helping people see that it's on a continuum. And so is the services. The mm. services are also on the continuum of, right. You may have a private practice such as myself, who not only do I have a private practice where we have a sliding fee scale, I have options for people who have no insurance. We have meaning like I know what the community models and I also want to make sure I make it a place that people who may have grown up in poverty can still feel safe. Mm-hmm. And then I also go do stuff in the community middle. I do stuff with community programs who mm-hmm. like, and so 
I am qualified to do my own private practice and still go and be in the community with some of the harder cases. Um, I think one, it not only makes me a better clinician, but two, I want people to see that, hey, this is what mental, we can do this all together. And so that's the stigma though. So it's like I said, the stigma is that. And then you have, right. So that's one part. And then the other part is when you not only have religious parts, but also this kind of, I think religion can play a part. And then people also really struggle with, there should be a reason for mental health. Like, what do you have to be sad about? Why, what do you have to be like there's So we don't, well, we don't recognize it as a medical condition always that mm. sometimes it's literally your hormones. Why are you flipping out on someone? Your hormones is off. It happens. Wow. And I tell women that all the time and not to, and just not, because when people are like always looking for a reason, I'm like, Hey, so you get to control that irritability when it kicks in, you, mm. you can say, Hey, hormones it's about to be that time and you can't be irritable you can control that no you can't and it's the same thing with mental health you can't always control that it there's like there's factors there's biological factors mm-hmm. meaning there's literally we cannot change your dna so there may be the same way congestive heart failure and diabetes can exist guess what mental health can exist so you didn't quote do anything it's you inherited it though. It can be hereditary. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And so the stigma is feeling like people, you did something for it. And when you feel like you did something for it, then I should be able to stop it. You should be able to not deal with it. Mm. Stop it because you, she acting like that on purpose. Really? Really? Mm. And I think that's a part of the stigma is we believe that it's something we can control. And because we believe people can control it, we expect them to stop. If they can control it, right. No one is honestly going to want to take their life Mm -hmm. in the healthiest of conditions. Mm -hmm. So we cannot say it's not a medical. We know that there are, there's biological factors. There's, you know, when we say factors related to medication, health conditions, there's a lot of people who have fibromyalgia and have high uh, rates of depression. Like we know that there's things happen, like it is medical. And so the stigma is starting to recognize also. And then with that, the same thing, right? If someone had cancer, we gonna tell them to pray, but we also gonna tell them to go take their chemo treatment. Mm-hmm. And this is why it's important to recognize it as a medical condition, because you can say, hey, I recognize you're depressed. Let's pray, but let's also go find you a therapist who maybe can pray with you and figure out more of what's going on. And that's why I'm like, if we can start to see it as a medical condition, because most medical conditions, if someone has cancer or if someone, you know, you may have lesions, you have multiple sclerosis, you have fibromyalgia. We encourage them to pray, whatever the religion is. We do, we encourage them to pray. But mm-hmm. we also, to some extent, still make them be like, hey, you need to go check out your doctor, what they think. Even if it's a holistic doctor, we will go say, see a doctor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when it comes to mental health, because we don't always recognize it to be this medical piece, Mm -hmm. we would, we gonna stop at just a prayer. But when it's other conditions and the stigma is really about helping people to see it as a medical condition, see Mm -hmm. it as there's other parts that there's other things that it's related to that is not in our control. And sometimes, so right, you need physical therapy because you didn't broke your leg. 
or shoot, I recently had plantar fasciitis or a sciatica. Man, if anybody had sciatica pain, that's some pain right there. Yeah. You're going to go figure out how to relieve it. It's no different. You're going to figure out how to go relieve it. And yes, I'm a prey, but I'm also going to figure out, oh, well, you know what? There may be a doctor out there who believes in prayer, but also has the medical background to tell me and uh, what else I need. And I think that's where the stigma is about is once we start to recognize it and see it and normalize it for what it is, and it not being this big taboo topic, I think religions won't knock it as much. I think poverty won't see it as this rich person thing. You know, like it's about normalizing it and having the conversation and really talking about the good days. Um, I mean, one of the best things I've seen recently, and like, I don't even think this person knows the impact, but they were getting ready to give a presentation and they said, hey, I'm gonna give this presentation. I have anxiety not on medication right now, but I have a different point. I have a therapist, but I'm telling you because sometimes I may go on a tangent or speak too fast. You just let me know. And they kept it moving as if nothing, like they didn't say, like it wasn't a big deal. They were just telling you, hey, so if I seem like I went off, or, but it was such a beautiful moment as a therapist to watch someone just, you know, I'm gonna give this presentation. I know myself, I know what I'm talking about, but I'm gonna tell you, I got anxiety. And so I get nervous and I go on tangents and I'm not on medication, been there, done that. I do do have a therapist and they just literally, and I was like, oh my God, like they don't know how much. (laughs) They don't know what they just did for this therapist, but that's what it was about. That moment right there. If people could just, let's talk about it. Let's not ignore it and normalize. Yeah, y'all, I'm nervous right now. I'm gonna do this still. Because right. we can still do hard things with it and it doesn't stop us. It just, it makes us feel like, hey, that's that breath. And sometimes just, rec- I, I recently worked with someone who first time they were like, I cried and cried. And when I finally let go and cried, the depression, I felt it kind of leaving as I cried. And I was like, and this was a male. I was like, yeah, like it was the first time. And I think it was, we recognize it. They mm-hmm. didn't try to explain it away. Mm-hmm. And they also let someone else in their life know. So it wasn't they just let their therapist know. They let someone else in their life know, like, God, this is so hard. Yeah. And they said, if, even just in that moment, it just felt like it was melting away. Wow. And so that's what I mean. That, that oh, big Yeah. Thing. On the normalization piece, too, I often say, you know, we, we encourage people, go get your annual physical. Go to your eye exam. Go to your dentist twice a year. I often say, well, like, if we could encourage everybody, go see your counselor once a year or twice a year or quarterly. And when you go in for that check-in, maybe you'll decide that you need to go every other week. Maybe you need to go every week. Or maybe they say, all right, we'll see you again in six months. But, like, if we could put that on the same kind of, and tell the insurance companies that too, right? If we could put that on the same kind of schedule as we do preventative care, it's, it should be considered preventative care absolutely Absolutely. and you get it as often as you need it or not so just like if you go to your main you know primary care physician and they send you to a specialist because there's something going on how much more so than if you go get checked in once or twice a year with your therapist and you you know go more or whatever it's Mm -hmm. preventative care right Mm -hmm. if we care about people yeah yeah that that's the key to stigma is all of us can play a role by let's normalize this let's talk about it um, because that's going to break the stigma. That's going to be, that's going to help a lot of people 
feel heard and seen and supported enough to share their story and then hopefully also seek help. That stigma, I think, is a key piece to moving this forward. And so people are listening now and they're like, so Jocelyn, Shante, what does knowing about mental health have to do with inclusion? Well, let me tell you, for one thing, it is, I think, a part of the the inclusion journey that people overlook as far as the diverse ways that people show up in the world. Like we talked about some people have, everybody has anxiety, right? They just, you manage it differently because it's a part of your your fight, fight or flight sort of situation, right? Um, the other thing is though, everybody has varying degrees of how they show up in the mental health space. So someone may be schizophrenic, someone may not be, someone may be um, suicidal, someone may not be, they may have um, manic episodes or they may not. So why is that important? Because as you're talking about creating these inclusive spaces, whether it's in your workspace or your worship space or your community organization or your fraternity or sorority, you want people to feel comfortable, right? And so we're like, yes, we love everybody of all races. Yes, we're fine with your gender and gender identity. Yes, it's okay if you need a cane to help you walk or a wheelchair to get around. Yes, you know, you may have a visual impairment. We are embracing all these things. Also, don't forget to embrace how people show up with whatever variety of mental health that they have when they come to you. That also helps create the inclusive space. Let me add to that because I have in this past year done a lot of, funny enough, a lot of talks at companies Mm -hmm. um, have asked me to come in around mental health and diversity inclusion. And I talk to the, even if they're not there, I always ask, well, let me talk to your HR department. And this is a key because a part of inclusion sometimes looks at making sure that if you do have someone that has a mental health diagnosis, that there is insurance in place for them to get the assistance they need. And that if they feel like they need to fill out FMLA paperwork, or if they need to do something because they need to take some mental health days, that there's the inclusion and the safety to be able to say, hey, I have severe bipolar. I am managed well with my medication. I am managed well with therapy, but sometimes, right, because they don't control it, there's a chemical spike and guess what? I may do something odd. What I need to be able to do is feel included and supported to know my job is taken care of. No one is going to think different of me. And if I need to take some time, it's not going to be a bunch of chatter around the office because you know she's crazy over there. Like that is what inclusion is about is that people, if they're going to be able to show up as their authentic self and what ever skin in any capacity understand mental health is what we often call that invisible disability or that invisible wound so you don't know what a person and so there's a lot of things that environments can do to help people with whether it's the benefits package mental health days the ability to have when we bring in people for professional development bring in a professional development person that's going to talk about how do we cope at work how do we have coping mechanisms talk about self-care talk about mental health days like so we do professional development and we think of it only in one way so I think of like not only there or even in faith-based practices what does it look like to say that there is a piece of mental health. Um, We know a lot of churches and different religions do stuff around wellness and we only look at wellness sometimes as financial wellness, spiritual wellness, but don't forget emotional and mental wellness also is in the part of total wellness Mm -hmm. in our body. And so I think that that's the part of like really the inclusion is 
there is this invisible piece and we think of sometimes disabilities or inabilities or abilities only in things that we can see mm -hmm. um, this inclusion being in something that is the latest topic well mental health been around it ain't going nowhere and the topic that needs to be brought to the table around inclusion is all right if you have that person who has a diagnosis of anxiety or that person that has depression is there a safe space is there a way that they could say that and still be supported and live in there like hey it was a bad day didn't i forgot to take my medicine or i didn't go to therapy because my therapist been out on maternity leave like there's things but that piece for people to be able to fill out paperwork take days off or when you have talk about workshops of any capacity that mental health is in there because it is a part of us it does not define us but it is a part of us well my friend i thank you for your time i appreciate your wisdom i appreciate you being willing to share all the wonderful things that you know Acknowledging the fact that me getting you in this space took a little bit of work because in addition to running a practice and teaching at a university, you are also working on your studies and, you know, moving that much closer to the PhD. So I appreciate and do not take it lightly that you carved out time to talk to me and the listeners about why this is such an important topic. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you a million times. Always. My pleasure. Always. And now it's time for one last thing. Typically during this segment, I share an inspirational quote that is related to the theme of the episode. Today, I am going to share encouragement. I hope that as you listened to the conversation between me and Shantae, you were able to gain more understanding about the importance of mental health care and that you started to either realize things about yourself or ways that you could be more helpful um, to those around you. Hopefully you understand that mental health is key and crucial to how folks feel safe to show up in society in the various places where they are. And so I am going to share in the show notes and here in the One Last Thing segment, resources where you can find help for yourself or others. Um, if you dial 211, that is a national helpline that was created by United Way, and they can help connect you to mental health resources in your area. There's also NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And NAMI has, an, has a helpline. It's 800-950-6264. Again, that's 800-950-6264. There is um, also a platform called Talkspace. It is a virtual um, connection to therapists and it is one-on-one -on -one therapy that you have to pay for typically. Um, there have been um, some free resources available on Talkspace to help people manage coronavirus anxiety. That information can be found um, on Facebook. There are um, There is the American Psychological Association um, that encourages mental health professionals to do pro bono. So if you do connect with a therapist, ask about if they have pro bono services available or if they have a sliding fee scale 
um, if you don't have insurance that covers it. If you happen to have insurance through your employer or through your partner or spouse's employer or your parents' employer, um, check the check the availability of what it covers. As far as mental health resources, it could be that they cover a part of it or all of it. Um, you probably have an employee assistance program at your workplace. Also look into things like BetterHelp, another um, virtual um, platform to get you the assistance that you need. There's community mental health services and a variety of communities that are run through community centers and churches and other places. So if there is um, help that you need or help that you would like to get others, there are resources available. And again, I will drop links and and organization names in the show notes. So please, as you encounter people, be kind, be understanding, be open, use some of the things that you learned today and, and consider the fact that everyone is dealing with something and they're dealing with it in different ways. And so use that to guide yourself as you interact with others. Thank you. Be well. Be sure to like and subscribe to Inscribing Inclusion on your favorite listening platform. Follow us on Twitter at InscribingPod and on Instagram at Inscribing Inclusion. And you can always email us at inscribinginclusion at gmail.com.